session with Dr. Farid Holaku. evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwe, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get into the books of the week. The book for this week is kind of one uh, more personal to me because it has to do with the Los Angeles Lakers. It's called The Three Ring Circus by Jeff Perlman. Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty by Jeff Perlman. Uh, this was a book that just came out, I think, a week or two ago, and I wanted to read it to um, see this uh, inside story or some of the behind the scenes of what happened to the Lakers in, in those years. And as you might know, there's a lot of things related to relationships, especially between Kobe and Shaq. So looking forward to reading that book and sharing it with you on uh, next week's show. And uh, a book about (laughs) healthy marriages might make sense related to some what was not healthy about what happened during some of those years, although they had some a lot of success three years in a row. Um, But uh, the book for this week was The All or Nothing Marriage by Eli J. Finkel. The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work, and Eli J. Finkel. He's a professor of uh, psychology and also in management organizations at Northwestern University and the director of the Relationships and Motivation Lab. And this was a a good book. I I think I I would highly recommend this for anyone, especially if you're married or want to get married, to just, um, you know, he explained some of the science behind relationship research that is giving you some helpful tips about what you can do to help your marriage. But the beginning, even this title, The All or Nothing Marriage, he outlines the history of marriage and how this institution has evolved. And he separates it into three uh, different eras, if you want to call it that. The first one being the pragmatic marriage, which was really what we consider oftentimes of um, people who are Uh, get married just for logistical reasons, to have children. Also, as he explains in in the previous era, really the home was your whole life, uh, even economically speaking, your health, your providing for yourself, taking care of everything, really was a pragmatic type of thing. And even you had kids and your children would work on your farm or uh, whatever it was that you did, they were essentially working for you. So the whole arrangement was about pragmatic reasons, logistical reasons. There was really not this emphasis or space for love that we think about now. Uh, and you'd maybe hope to grow to love each other or have a more loving relationship, but the emphasis wasn't on having a loving relationship. And then this changed um, or with the advent of the Industrial Revolution and as people were, and I should also note, he specifically focuses on America. He mentions that a few times. American marriages, but a lot of the uh, themes relate to marriages anywhere, really. But he shares that then there was uh, the experience of love was now possible. So from pragmatism to love. And so you could love each other because some of the things that were necessary to survive were less, um, thankfully for many people, more taken care of. So you didn't have to just be in the home. And slowly we found roles that were 
kind of rigid rules for men and women, men working outside the home being the primary breadwinner and women being in the home taking care of the kids and the cleaning and the cooking. And so we had the development of these two roles. And he puts it at times like as these equals, even though they weren't, of course, considered equal, the men and women in the marriages, but it allowed for these two separate spheres of existence, but they were both necessary to survive. And so then it became this loving marriage became more possible. And so then we had the era of the the marriage of love, uh, which had its very clear roles of man and woman, husband, wife. And that started to give way, especially in the 60s and the 70s, to what he talks about as the uh, a marriage based on self-expression. So that's really where we are at now, is that it, we transitioned from a marriage where love was the goal, if you could have it, to one where self-expression is possible. And I'll get into that and what that means. And so the reason why he calls it the all-or-nothing marriage is that the possibility for what marriage can give us now in this period is more than it ever could before. So in your relationship, in your marriage, the possibility is even higher. But actually what we also find is that overall marriage satisfaction seems to have gotten less over time, the decline of the happy marriage. So he, people that say they're very happy, we see from 1972 to 2014, a slight decline in the percentage of people that would say they are very happy. And so why this might be is that we have more of a potential to have a better marriage, but that also means if you don't have it, you don't feel so good. So you can have it all, but a lot of times you also might end up with nothing. Now, the majority of people can get to all, and that's what also this book is about, where you can have that self-expressive marriage where you get everything you can, your partner helps you grow and develop into the best version of yourself, and you can have love and passionate sex, and a friendship that's meaningful, and all those good things that we want in a marriage, but it's not easy. It's harder to get that, and that's what this book is hoping to help us in understanding what those marriages have, as he puts it, reverse engineering to get to that point of what it means to have a all the all marriage, the full um, expressive marriage that we want. And so he also mentions Abraham Maslow, and that what we're talking about here is previous marriages took care of the, the lower needs, things like the physiological needs, maybe safety needs, some level of belonging and love. But now in the self-expressive language, we're also looking for love that's going to lead to self-actualization, to growing into the best version of ourselves. And sometimes it even sounds cheesy and people will talk about these things, but there's some truth to that, that people are now looking for someone who's going to help them grow into who they want to be, not just someone to love them, but to help bring out the best version of them and to achieve that. And so he talks about Mount, uh, Mount Maslow and looking at the hierarchy of needs in a way like uh, a mountain and that the higher you go, um, the altitude is thinner. I'm trying to show it to the Instagram live office, having uh, audience, not having a good time with that. So I'll stop uh, trying to do that. Um, but that the, uh, there's less altitude, it's more dangerous, but if you go there, the view is worth it. And that's actually a line he ends the book with, is that it's worth the view if you climb this mountain together. And it's interesting, I hadn't read this book, but that same analogy, maybe because it makes sense, uh, came to my mind too when I looked at relationships that, you know, if you look at the mountain, you can play it safe and stay low and just look at the view from a low point and you'll be okay. You won't get hurt or the chance of getting hurt is not very high or you can take the risk with your partner 
and that it means the risk of vulnerability, of being open, of creating a more meaningful love together. But you climb this mountain, and as you climb the mountain, of course, you can get hurt more. The air gets thinner. Also, if you fall, you fall a lot harder. If you lose a love that you've had your whole life that's been very meaningful, it's going to hurt a lot more than if you don't invest that much into that relationship. Um, so there's a lot more that you can lose as far as falling from that higher place, but also the higher you go, the view is more beautiful. And the view is something that you can only really experience. It's not something you can just picture or imagine or someone take a picture for you. So you take that risk for together, but this is what we have in front of us, the possibility for an all or nothing love. You want to go for that all, of course, and try to create that with your partner. Uh, I also like there was something in related to this of bringing out that best version of yourself that one of his colleagues, or actually I think it was one of his mentors, uh, created something called uh, the Michelangelo effect. So the Michelangelo effect is named after, of course, the artist Michelangelo. And he would say that it's not that he sculpts something in a way, like creates something. What he does is he has a piece of marble and he has to just remove all the parts that are extra to get to that uh, final product, what he's seeing in his mind. So it's not so much of creating something, but of taking away the rest to help it grow. And so in that good relationship, um, partners sculpt each other in ways that elicit each person's authentic self. That's from the book. Um, so that Michelangelo effect, we're hoping to have a partner that brings out the best in us. And this is something we've heard in lots of different iterations with this idea that we can have a partner that brings out different aspects of ourselves. That's one part, but also a partner that helps us grow as we are together into an even better version of ourselves. And that's what we hopefully are looking for. Now, one of the issues that comes up when we have this desire for such a strong love and such a meaningful relationship with someone is that we're at times expecting so much from one person. And, and he mentions Esther Perel in this book, but the psychotherapist Esther Perel has talked about this, that what before we might have asked from a village, like so many different people and, and people in our village, we expect from one person, our partner, to be our friend, our confidant, the person we confide in, the person who motivates us, inspires us, the person we also have sex with, uh, everything we could want from one person. And at times we have to be aware that if we expect everything from one person, that can be a problem because there just isn't enough time. There isn't enough of one person where they can give us everything. They might not be the best at everything. And we might have to be aware of balancing that. So he talks about that throughout the book after he explains the history of marriage, as he puts it, looking at the development of the self-expressive love that we have now. He gives some tools of what we can do to help us in the process. So the first group of tools he uses, he calls love hacks. Uh, you maybe have heard of things like life hacks and things like that. Um, so the love hacks are more short-term things you can do to try to make your relationship better. So for example, one of the ones he talks about, it revolves gratitude. And I've done this with my clients before of thinking about things you are grateful for about your partner. So what are you grateful for? about your partner, things they did, who they are. And this can start to cultivate gratitude and you start to focus more on the positive things. And so it has to be real. You can't just fake it and say things that aren't true. But 
almost always there's going to be some good in your relationship, some good in your partner. And if you focus on that, doesn't mean you completely ignore the bad or pretend like it's not there. But by cultivating gratitude, whether it's in our own life or in our relationship and in our partner, that can have a positive effect. So the love hacks he presents, these are all short-term things that actually an individual can do on their own. You don't even need to have your partner to, to be involved. Also, adopting a growth mindset is very important. So it's interesting, you know, sometimes couples or individuals will think love is just either there or it's not there, and that's it. And that's kind of what we would call a fixed mindset based on Carol Dweck's research on this topic. And actually, this feeling of, you know, sometimes a fairy tale marriage and two people are just meant to be soulmates in this way can actually be dangerous because what ends up happening is if your marriage, which any marriage will, faces some kind of hardships or challenges because that's natural part of relationships, you're going to think, uh oh, this was the wrong relationship because in my perfect marriage that I imagined, if we're really right for each other, then we shouldn't have these challenges. We shouldn't have problems like this. I thought this person was my Prince Charming. I must have been wrong. And so at times people will give up on the marriage, give up on the relationship, seek someone else out. Unfortunately, what they're likely to find is again at the beginning, they might have that great feeling and it feels like a fairy tale all over again. But eventually challenges will come up because that is a part of relationships that we have to expect and accept and so people who have destiny beliefs that think that partners are either meant to be or not unfortunately they tend to be unhappier in their marriage and we're less likely to to try but if you have growth beliefs understanding that even in a very good relationship there's going to be challenges there's going to be things that will come up in your relationship and that you can actually work on them you can make them better you're more likely to pursue uh, trying to make things better, trying to actually go further in the relationship to, to, to make things work out. So I thought that was very interesting. So when we focus on the positive, again, not in an unrealistic way, but a realistic way, we see the positive more as well in our partner. Or for example, how we look at what they do. So this goes to our own mindset about looking at what they do. So if they do something negative, if you think that it is something stable about your partner and something internal. Oh, he's just a jerk and he's always going to be this way. That's the worst thing. But if you think it's external and temporary, so I think, oh, you know, he must have just had a bad day today at work. That's why he acted that way. You'll have a better time dealing with your conflict. So, and the opposite is true of the good things they do. If you think it's um, internal and stable, that means you're going to have a better time thinking, you know what, my partner did that because he's, he has an example. My spouse brought me uh, a surprise gift because he's a kind-hearted man. And so that would make it more likely that you really feel that my partner is a good person that cares about me and makes you see the positive as even more strongly as you would if you didn't. An interesting one uh, he also had about conflict was to imagine a third party viewing your conflict who has the best interest for both of you and the best interest in the relationship, looking at your conflict. Because we know when we have conflict, we get very ingrained in this me against you feeling. Whatever the conflict is, even in our most intimate romantic relationships where you think you care so much about each other that you actually think about the other person so much, we still see that happen. And that's why almost always uh, when I have 
clients in therapy for couples therapy, one of the things I know at some point is going to have to come up is teaching them or bringing their, to their attention that rather than just pointing the finger at each other, we're going to have to point the finger at ourselves to see what am I doing that's contributing negatively to this relationship and what can I do to make things better? Because that's the only way things can get better. You can only change yourself. Now, of course, you need to voice your complaints and things you're not happy about, but eventually you have to look at what can I do better and accept your side of the responsibility and contribution to where you are. So by doing this uh, love hack that he mentions, imagine a third party that cares about both of you looking at your conflict. It'll give you a little perspective that'll take you away from that in the moment feeling of being so against your partner. We're not against each other. As I always tell them, if you fight against each other, you always lose. But if you fight together for the relationship, you want to have a win-win together, then you're likely to get to a better place. So so those were some of the love hacks that he mentioned that are more short-term things that you can do. Now, after the break, I'll continue talking about some of the longer-term things that he mentions and also some things you can do when things are not working in the relationship. So again, the name of the book is The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work by Eli, Eli J. Finkel. I'll talk more about that after the break. Welcome back. So in the first segment was talking about the book, The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work by Eli J. Finkel and wanted to continue on that topic. So as I mentioned before, the book is a great one for couples to read. Even if you've been married, you already have certain experiences or you think things have happened in your marriage, it doesn't mean you can't uh, make your marriage better. It's never too late to work on your relationship or, and he, in a way, he addresses this, it's never too late to really look at your relationship and assess what you have. Even when people come to couples therapy, of course, the goal is essentially to help the relationship get better and to resolve things. But one of the things I you have to be ready for if you go to couples therapy or really look at your relationship is you might see that either you're too incompatible or there's too much damage that's already been done in the relationship. Not every relationship can be repaired. You do want to try everything you can, try your best, but we do have to be ready for that. So you could go to couples therapy and in the process of seeing what's going on and what's happened in the relationship, of course, the therapist should not make the decision for you, but you might recognize that it's it's a good idea to end this relationship. It's not going to, to work. It won't be resolved. The things that we were hoping would resolve and we might have to accept that. So that's something you have to be ready for. And oftentimes I think, especially when we think of older marriages, or sometimes people will say, well, you know, people got divorced less or more. And, and he talks about the divorce rates in the book, but, you know, at different times, well, a lot of times people didn't not get divorced because they didn't want to, but they didn't have any other choice. So it's different to have a choice. And also sometimes people say even still in a marriage they're miserable in, um, and they don't do much about it, but just stay miserable. Of course, they'll say certain things like we're staying together for the kids. What I always tell people is don't just stay together for the kids, work together on the marriage for the kids. So if you've tried everything, yes, then you might make that decision, which still might be the wrong one to stay together if the marriage is, is a negative one that's having a negative impact on the children. But don't just stay together without working on something because maybe you can work on it and make it better. 
So it's not just about withstanding. It's about working to see, can we make this relationship better? Maybe it can work, but it is something we always have to be ready for. If you take a look at your relationship, maybe there's some things that you will recognize are not going to work or that your relationship won't work and you might have to move on. So I mentioned the love hacking. Those are the shorter term, but in the chapter after that, he talks about going all in and more um, longer term things we can do to try to create that all part of the all or nothing marriage. And he talks about surviving versus thriving, that we don't want to just survive, that we want to thrive. And actually he quotes um, Maya Angelou, which he's quoting two, two other psychologists who mentioned her quote, which is, my mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. Surviving is important. Thriving is elegant. That's from Maya Angelou. And so this idea that we want to have a marriage that thrives, not just survives. So yeah, you maybe stayed married for a long time, which can be good, but let's see if you can actually make it where your marriage is a thriving marriage. And so he, he talks about how it's important to create time for each other and how this has gotten harder as people have gotten busier with their lives on top of, of course, if they have kids and other things that are going on, but how important it is to make sure you spend some time together. Even he shares, and a few times he shares uh, in the book some stories about his, him and his own wife, Allison. And actually, if I'm going to mention his wife, uh, Allison, I should mention that I, I, I shared this on my Instagram page, but he has one of the funniest dedication pages I've seen uh, to my wife, Allison, who finds it hilarious that I'm a marriage expert. I thought that was so funny and humble too, uh, but saying that, of course, he's a, because he's saying he's a marriage expert, that's what he studies, but it doesn't mean he's always getting it right. And I think that's a very important thing for all of us to keep in mind. If you're a medical doctor, me as a therapist, of course, anyone, it doesn't mean you're immune to making mistakes or getting things wrong. And so he shares how him and his wife, Allison, they uh, leave their kids for one night a week, a lot most weeks, it seems like at their grandparents' house, I don't know from which side of the family, and they get to have kind of a date night. Sometimes they go out, sometimes they stay in. And in these conversations that they have together, they sometimes have something very meaningful with that time they have. So it's an interesting thing. You know, we talk about having important conversations. I mention that all the time. I think it's so important that we, we try to have those important conversations. You have to initiate them a lot of times, even when it's uncomfortable. But as he also shares in, in expressing the views of other um, experts on relationships it's not just about having the conversations you also have to have time together that might allow for a more meaningful conversation to start or be created sometimes you're having a talk about something and then it leads to something else and you realize oh i never told you something really important about my own life so that's really important and of course related to spending time is also attention um, it's not just about being together if you're both looking down on your phone that's a very different experience than looking eye to eye and having a conversation. So um, that's an important thing, giving each other uh, that kind of attention. Of course, communication. It's one of those cliche things we talk about, but it's so important to be aware of how you communicate. And all of us can do better in how we communicate from the, the ways we talk, the ways also we listen. I, I shared a book recently, You're Not Listening, about how important that is. And sometimes we think it's just uh, the, the silent part of a conversation, but it's a very important part of the conversation. So how you speak, how you listen, those things are so important and something important to keep in mind, 
How can I get better at communicating? Again, going back to that growth mindset, we, we might think that shouldn't I just be good at it? Shouldn't we just know how to talk? But that's definitely not the case that we are just going to be good at any aspect of communicating, any aspect of relationships. We always can improve. Uh, as I sometimes like to say, things like being even in a relationship, the feeling or the desire is natural, but it doesn't mean being good at it is natural. So you might be attracted to people or even as a parent, you might want to be a parent because you love that and you have that that desire, that urge, that wanting to be a parent. And that's a beautiful thing. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be good at parenting and disciplining your children in all aspects of being a good parent. So we have to be aware that, yes, we can talk, we can communicate. doesn't mean we are good at it and we can't get better at the ways that we communicate. So that's very important. Um, he mentioned responsiveness, and I thought that was interesting which involves three core components of being responsive to your partner. So the first one is understanding. So that's comprehending the partner's core self, really looking at who, who they are. Validation, involving respect for your partner's uh, view of the self. And also caring, which involves expressing affection, warmth, and concern for the partner's well-being. So we want to be a responsive partner. And so that involves giving them that time and attention with love, where you are being understanding, validating their experience and also caring for them with affection and warmth. So I thought that was, that was interesting. He also said a, a third set of strategies he mentions in this going all in section is about play and how important that is to play. And of course, when we think of play, we might just think of games and it can include that, but also include socializing um, couples. Of course, you might not only socialize together. You might have girls nights and guys nights and whatever else, but you want to make sure you socialize together as well, even with others, um, having novel and exciting activities. So getting yourself out of your comfort zone. And it sounds maybe cliche. People say trying new things, you know, people go apple picking or, you know, things like that. that sometimes one person might like more than the other, but it is important to do some of these things. It does make you feel closer and more connected to your partner when you do some new things and of course that can get even harder once you have children so you might find different ways of doing that but there are essentially infinite ways that we can try new things to do together and he also mentions sex and romance how this is uh, another aspect of play or a way that we play together that is important to keep in mind um, that you communicate and understand your your sexual relationship i've talked about this before how a lot of couples i work with even they've been married years and they've never had a conversation about their sex life and this is really um, unfortunate because again that's another one of those things the desire to have uh, sex and, and have a sexual relationship might be natural but it doesn't mean that you will be creating a good sexual relationship together without any communication or any working on the relationship so you need to talk about the sexual experience how much you're having, are you satisfied, what you like and don't like, it needs to be there. And so you have to put an emphasis on that and, and be mindful of what's going on there. And so uh, these are all the going all in types of things he mentions, which is much more about what you can do really to, to try to make a big impact on things getting better. And then the, another section which was interesting was about recalibrating. And I hadn't thought so much about this. So he talks about having this all-or-nothing marriage, really ascending Mount Maslow and trying to help your partner and help each other achieve self-actualization and having 
everything you want in this relationship. Again, we have to be mindful of our expectations. But he talks about in this recalibrating chapter, and he shares his own experience with his wife. I think it's after they have their child, and a few different times when this happens, but once is after they have a child, and he actually experiences some level of postpartum depression as the, the father, which does happen to apparently up to about a quarter of men will experience some level of emotions like that. Uh, but a few times he mentions how they had to, to recognize that they might have to lower their expectation, at least temporarily. Uh, and then later on, they might find a way to, to go back up, as he says. So they might have to come down the mountain for a little bit and then later on uh, ascend Mount Maslow again. So we have to be aware of these things that your relationship might give you everything you ever wanted, but it doesn't mean it's going to give you everything you ever wanted all the time, every moment of the relationship. And so it might be tough to have these conversations when we recognize, you know what, as much as um, we'd like for there to be some level of experience we have together, we have to be ready that we won't always be able to give each other everything, which is tough to recognize that. But we have to be open to those conversations about, you know what, maybe right now, as he puts it, we might have to descend Mount Maslow. We might not get to all those higher needs that we were hoping to get in the relationship. But if we lower our expectations for a little bit of time, we might be able to go back up. But hopefully it's a decision that you come to together. So I highly recommend the book. I think it does a really good job of expressing some aspects of relationships I hadn't thought about in some ways, but looking at things that you can do to focus on love in your relationship. And really this goal of having a relationship where you have a partner that brings out the best in you, as cheesy as it might sound, but sometimes things are cheesy and cliche because there's a lot of truth and goodness to them, that you actually can have a marriage that does bring out the best in you, that you encourage each other to grow uh, in the relationship. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but like anything, if you want to get to that higher mountaintop, it's going to be harder, but hopefully it'll feel like it is is worth it. And I was looking for this quote about relationships that I really liked, and uh, I hope I'll be able to find it because I'm kind of skimming through the pages here. Um, but it, it's talking about how really when you're in a relationship, you're connected to someone, but you're not really trying to make them become anything. You're allowing them to grow, but you're not forcing them to become something you want them to become. And this is really hard and really challenging because sometimes we think, well, we're with someone, we should be trying to make them, we'll try to make them into something we want them to be. But really in a healthy relationship, we're not going to try to make the other person become something we want them to be. We're going to help them become the person they want to be, which is, I think, quite interesting. And I probably won't find the quote and that's okay. Um, but I thought that was really interesting to recognize that, that how do you love someone in a way that allows them to become the best version of themselves? Because it's not that simple to figure that out. So um, someone asked during the commercial break about changing your partner. And I talked about this recently too, but it's that you hopefully won't be trying to change them in that I won't be with you unless you become what I want you to be. But you hopefully want to help them grow, that you aren't trying to make them, you need to be this or I won't want to be with you. But you love your partner as they are now, but you also want to help them grow into the best version of themselves. And also, if you're not growing, you're dying. So if you're with someone, you need to recognize that hopefully in 10 years, you both will be slightly different from who you are now, 
hopefully better versions of yourself, more expansive versions of yourself as far as getting in touch with other parts of yourself. Um, and so we have to be ready for that. And you want a partner that will help you grow. So it's not about changing your partner. Uh, change sounds different to me than helping your partner grow. Change means you can't be what you are. Grow means this is who you are and you'll continue to evolve and grow together but it's a very different process. So I very much enjoyed this book. I think it gave me some insights into marriages and relationships and some things that work and don't work. So I highly recommend it to anyone to check out The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work by Eli J. Finkel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first two segments was talking about the book, The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work by Eli J. Finkel. And so I wanted to talk about this theme, one of the themes in the book that comes up and that comes up in books related to relationships is that at times we get bored or people say they get bored in a relationship. And so even people will tell you, you have to get bored. And there is some evidence of that, of people losing their passion or desire in a relationship. But the ways I've seen it talked about as something inevitable makes it seem like you have to get bored of each other and there's no choice. And Esther Perel talks about this, but I remember also being exposed to it first by Stephen Mitchell in his wonderful book, Can Love Last? And I read it for the show three or four years ago. It was one of the earlier books I read. And it exposed me to this idea of how people say they get bored in marriage, but at some level, this is a choice that they make. So the way that it's a choice we make is that we there's stability and security, feeling like you know someone. And then there's passion, which is often built on a little bit of unknowing and mystery. So this is why when you first meet someone, you're so excited about meeting them and seeing them. But what's also creating some of that passion is that you don't quite know them fully. And so that makes you a bit excited about who is this person and, and that unknown helps create some of that spark of passion. Now we start to get to know someone and they become more known. And so some of that can feel good, but it can feel like that passion might die because, well, now I know you. And so what Stephen Mitchell was talking about, so he says, you know, we have this paradox of these two what can feel like conflicting types of things security and knowing someone and some of that unknown and passion so he was arguing that we're essentially trading the passion for stability we would rather feel safe and secure in our partner in our relationship and so what we tell ourselves is i fully know this person they can't surprise me anymore i know what he or she is going to think do everything and so they become boring but what he says is we are actually choosing this. And together, the two members of the partnership, they choose to just say, you know what? I fully know you. Uh, this is boring. I know exactly what you do because that feels safer. I know what you're going to do, so I don't have to worry about it. But feeling like I fully know you will make things boring. So the reality is that we actually would be better off accepting and recognizing that at some level, you know your partner but you can never fully know them 100%. 
not only that, hopefully they are growing in the course of your marriage together and the relationship and in their life. So even if you knew them fully, which you really can't, but even knew them, let's say, very well, as they continue to grow, there's more to, to know and learn and understand about them. So one of the ways answering that question, can love last, is that yes, it can, because you can recognize that your partner is not some fully known thing. As a human being, there's something that you can continually learn about. And so sometimes I like to say you should never stop dating in that you, one, when you're dating, you put more effort in the relationship, right? You're, he mentioned in the book, people at first in the relationship, we're doing new things. You don't just, okay, we're just going to sit at home and do nothing. You go out and try different things to try to impress each other, to try to you know make things exciting. But we never have to stop doing that. You can try doing new things. You also can try your best to impress each other. Not like impress as in I need to be different from myself, but that you actually want to try to be the best version of yourself, even in taking care of how you look, how you dress, even exercising, whatever it is you might be, you should always be feeling like I'm trying to look good for my partner, be good for my partner. So you never want to lose that spirit of dating. And another aspect is that I want to try to know the other person better, right? So we're asking questions, trying to understand, learn about different aspects of them. So we never want to stop dating. And if we can hold on to some of that mentality, which does come potentially with some of that instability or, or insecurity of not knowing for sure that I know you 100%, we actually can keep that passion alive. So really, like a lot of things, it's about a balancing act. It's not that you're purely unknown or purely known, but recognizing that, yes, I know you very well. I know about a lot of things in your past, and also you probably see how the person reacts and responds to different things and know them. So it's not that you don't know them at all, but you don't fully know them. And it's recognizing that there's this balance. And if you can find that in between, you're more likely to keep the passion alive in the relationship for the long haul. So they even have done research on people looking at their brains and couples who are newly in love versus couples who have been in love or say and, and express that they're still very much in love 10, 20 years later. And they found that the brains of these two individuals, when they were asked to think about their loved one, was very similar. So they're people that are still in that in love feeling decades after meeting their partner. And your initial reaction might be, oh, they're so lucky. You know, you're just lucky if you find that kind of love. But going back to what I mentioned about this book is that good marriages aren't about luck or in the sense that you find some soulmate. And if you find that soulmate, everything is happily ever after and easy. You have to work to create a healthy happy marriage. Or if you want to stay in love for a long time, it's not just are you lucky or not. It's about how do you approach the relationship? How do you work on the relationship? What are you going to do to make that happen? Don't just wait for it to happen. And he mentioned a lot of books that I really like in the book, a lot of relationship researchers like Gottman, who John Gottman, who was wonderful. But he, and he also mentioned Eric Fromm in his book, The Art of Loving. And to look at love as an art, meaning that it takes skill and attention and practice to get good at it. Not just, again, I, you know, humans are supposed to love each other or fall in love, so I know how to do it. But actually look at this art of loving as something you want to get better at. And as Eric Fromm talks about in this book, many people think that the only hard part when it comes to love is finding the right object to love. So once I find that right person, the rest is easy. 
rather than recognizing on how to love and be a loving person and to love someone is something that takes a lot of time and attention and we need to treat it as such. And that's something that I really loved about that book because usually people, when you ask them about their love life, of course, usually you mean, who are you dating? And tell us about that. But even in their own mind, a lot of times the thought is, I just have to find the right person. And yes, finding the right person is very important. We don't want to lose sight of being a good partner, being a good lover, being someone who loves our partner in the right way. Now, what I also thought about in reading this book and in that aspect about balancing between knowing someone and recognizing that you don't know them so that you still have the passion along with the stability, I think you can also say that same thing about ourselves. So we get to know ourselves. Self-discovery is a big aspect of life. Even in this book, when it talks about self-expressive love, we have to first try to know who we are to then express who we are, and express who that is. And so we have to actually look within ourselves to see what is there. Now, I think we do some of that same thing where we get bored with our partner, with ourselves, because it's a little bit scary to think, you know what, I maybe have aspects of myself that I have not expressed yet. I may not be just who I think I am as far as these parts that I've seen, because I think each individual, we're not all the same, but we're all complex. Even in the book, he talks about how, uh, you know, you can have a, a masculine and a feminine side however you define those things and really everyone has both and usually the people who have both who are more androgynous have the male and the female are the healthiest in the sense that they are more balanced they can be both they're not just one or the other and so when i think of most people all of us myself included we tend to think we know ourselves but very often because we're afraid to be certain maybe aspects of ourselves, or get in touch with certain parts of ourselves. Jung would talk about the shadow. Maybe there's parts of yourself that you're afraid to get in touch with, that you're afraid to express because maybe you think it's bad or it's wrong, or you might think it's too hard to control that aspect so you put it completely away. So in a way, you might feel bored with life at times or bored with yourself at times because you think you fully know yourself and you haven't given yourself the space to express different aspects of yourself and you haven't looked within yourself enough to see that there's more within you than you actually know about very often i've seen this with so many of my clients and just people in life not that we want anyone to go through a hardship but sometimes they go through a hardship and a certain strength comes out of them that they never knew they had or they would have never thought they could tap into that you've said you know if five years ago you told them they would go through what they went through, they say, oh, there's no way I would survive that. And then it happens to them and they survive it. Not only do they survive it, sometimes they thrive coming out of it. And so we see that there's much more within us. As Walt Whitman says, I contain multitudes. There are so many aspects within each and every one of us. And so we have to be, as, hard, as scary as it can be, open to that notion that there's more to you than you even know about which can sound strange. And it's something that comes up even in therapy when I'll ask someone, how are you feeling or how do you feel about that? And sometimes they say, I don't know. And jokingly, I'll say, well, who should we ask? Because it sounds kind of funny that you who are within your own head or having your own experience, even you don't know what you're feeling. And sometimes that's true. All of us are at times and very often not in touch with what we're feeling or especially everything that we're feeling because there can be so much. And so we recognize that 
we who are even our own person, we might not know ourselves. And so that love that you try to create with someone else, which is so important, we also don't want to lose sight of finding love with yourself. And to love something, you have to know it. And knowing is not a black and white thing, as I've talked about in this segment. It's something that you continue to do. You continue to get in touch with it. You might think, oh, I'm not an angry person, or I'm not an emotional person, or I'm not a this person. And you might not be fully to the extent that some other people are. But is it possible that you're closing off some aspects of yourself because it feels safer to you that way, to not be that way? Oh, I'm not a, you know, I don't really have a feminine side. Well, what is it about having a feminine side that you might not like, that you might not allow yourself to get access to? And of course, culture and society and different things and the family you grew up in will definitely have a big impact on aspects of yourself that you want to be in touch with or want to express and some that you don't some that you don't want to express but i think the vitality of life and the excitement of life comes from being in touch with all these aspects of yourself when you close off certain aspects it's like you have a house and you've closed off certain rooms there's experiences and things you can have in those rooms that you won't allow yourself to have because you're afraid to open the door and see what's in there you're afraid to open the door and maybe you think you can't handle it or you don't think you should have whatever is in that room. So you'd rather close yourself off. So you can imagine someone living in this big house, but most of the rooms are closed off. And because it feels safe, they stay within a small area of that room. But of course, if you stay within that small area, you're more likely to get bored. And that's what I think happens to people. So I think it's interesting that parallel, that in relationships, if you think you fully know your partner, and you fully think there's nothing left to know about you, that's it, you're just boring, you're actually fooling yourself because you don't recognize every person has so much um, more to them that you can never fully know who they are. So you might think you fully know your partner, but you don't. And so, of course, sometimes when people even use this example, they say, how can you fully know that person when no one can even fully know themselves? So we have to also look at that the other way. If you get bored with your life, if you get bored with what you are doing, if you feel like there's nothing left to live for or to do, or that this is just it, you're probably not getting in touch with every aspect of yourself. You are much more than what you've expressed so far. And if you think you're done getting in touch with what's within you, you're, you're sadly mistaken and you're also sadly going to miss out on so much that is in there. And then also first for yourself to get in touch with to experience, but then also to express for other people to enjoy. Sometimes I work with a couple and they, you know, one of them's, oh, I'm just not emotional. But of course they have it within them. Maybe it's scary for them to get emotional or to express vulnerability, to express tenderness, or maybe they think it's weak, or maybe they're afraid that the person will take advantage of them or whatever it might be. Usually there are some blocks from them getting in touch with what's there. But what I think is interesting is for us to recognize that just like you can continue to fall in love with your partner by recognizing that there's much more to them than what you think you fully know because you can't fully know them, but that you can also have that same love for yourself and to continue to fall in love with yourself by recognizing there's more within me that I can express and first experience and get to know. And then you can uh, you know, share that with others as well, but first to get in touch with it yourself. So you can continually fall in love with yourself for the rest of your life which might sound cheesy and very new agey, but I think there's something to that, that there's something to fall in love with within ourselves and with the ones 
that are around you as well. That boredom is usually a choice that we're making to think that I already know something fully. There's nothing else to see in that person or in ourself, but it's something that we're doing to fool ourselves to choose that safety over the uncertainty of experiencing something new. Well, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful night.